Hi folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 596 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Friday, January 28, 2011. That means we'll only be one more show in the month of January. January, for all intents and purposes, is over, folks. Hope you're making progress with your prepping and your individual liberty and freedom. That's what it's all about. It's just a daily, one little increment more free, one more increment little more independent, and one more increment little prepared. But time does march on. We are all on a sliding scale. I hope you're sliding toward freedom and not toward oppression. Today is a Friday. That means we're going to have your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. If you'd like to have your call on a show like this, you get about two minutes when you call into that hotline to leave your message and uh, make your point and do it quick. You will hear perfect examples of how to do that today. Reminder, do not call from cell phones while you're driving in a car. It's probably a bad idea. It'll make your connection fade in and out, and you won't know it because no one's on the other end to tell you. Uh, so if you're going to use a cell phone, call from a stationary location. Call from a landline. Do not call from vehicles with the window open or standing in the middle of a windstorm. Uh, once again, I had to call out calls because couldn't understand you. Got one from a guy today, kind of hard to understand, but based on where he's calling from, I'll put it through anyway. Uh, but the, the ones that got called out were much worse. Um, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping so we can go ahead and start taking your calls. Uh, item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, ShelfReliance.com. Uh, these guys make some of the most innovative and best food storage stuff I've ever seen in my life. That's why they're called shelf, as in like something you place something on versus self like you yourself, Reliance.com. Their systems allow you to take canned goods and rotate them, eat what you store, store what you eat, and either use very small, compact systems that would fit in your pantry or your cupboard, and guess what? They're called the pantry and the cupboard, or great big giant systems like the Harvest 72 that I have a video of uh, that you can take a look at if you'd like to do that, where you can store literally half a ton of food in one rack system and always have the most current uh, or the the uh, the food that's been there the longest available at your fingertips and as you add stuff to replace it you're always putting it to the back check out shelf reliance and check out their thrive food products remember if you're in the MSB you get 10% off all shelving and 5% off all of their thrive long term storage food items uh, next up today, silverandgoldshop.com, run by the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont. Why do I call her wonderful? Because that's what the audience calls her. In every email I get about this lady, she's wonderful. I, I've never had a sponsor. Uh, I've never worked with any company ever or any person ever where the customers constantly use that word. Uh, I guess it's a special characteristic when you really take care of people and you're really committed to the best in customer service, the best in product, and the best in pricing. So check out silverandgoldshop.com, uh, specifically for some of the, the very coolest, uh, neatest uh, silver rounds you'll find. And remember, if you have things coming up with nieces, nephews, kids, uh, grandkids, stuff like that, with birthdays and stuff like that, and we're usually giving plastic Chinese-made crap, consider putting a real silver dollar, let's call it that, a real silver dollar in their hands, a silver round, an ounce of silver. And remember, when you give that to a kid, you tell them, I know that you're going to grow in worth 
and this is going to grow in worth if the two of you can grow together. That's a pretty cool way to teach people and teach kids about sound money uh, and things like gold and silver. We're actually going to wrap today's show up uh, with a with some uh, a guy ranting about my stance on gold not equaling money in and of itself. Uh, hopefully, from what you just heard, you know that I'm a big fan of silver and gold. Just I do not like when we take things to the point of dogma. So hold on to your seats for this one at the end. It should be quite interesting. Uh, next up, make sure you check out our gear shop. And speaking of intrinsic value of metals, um, our AOCS copper rounds came in this week, actually last week while the guys were at SHOT Show, and uh, they are now shipping out. They've shipped about half of them as of yesterday, uh, and the other half will be shipping over the next day or two because there's just that many that were ordered. We ordered 11,000 in the initial run, and uh, almost all of them are sold out. So they're shipping almost everything that came in. Uh, so that's an awful lot of shipping work they're doing. We also have a new run in, a new short run going for 2,000 more. If you'd want some of these copper coins, the AOCS Copper 2s, uh, with the TSP uh, uh, logo on them and the uh, real truth about money on the back, you'll want to order them soon because they're going to sell out and we're not going to be able to get any more for about 90 days. Uh, the first one took so long because they were a new coin, new die, things like that. Um, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You get great discounts, like I mentioned, uh, with uh, Shelf Reliance. Silverandgoldshop.com, by the way, with Tea Party Silver Rounds, you get a dollar off a piece. Uh, that's actually a pretty big percentage discount for silver. Uh, and there's about 20 other vendors. There's a bunch of free ebooks, all kinds of great stuff if you join the Member Support Brigade, including people ask me sometimes, how do I get every episode of the Survival Podcast? There's only 40 in iTunes. Well, that's because the feed can only be so big. I would put more in there if I could, but after a certain point, it crashes the feed burner feed. But I couldn't put them all in there even if I tried. Well, the way you get them all is you you know, you know, can go through and download them one at a time. You join the Member Support Brigade, and they're all there in zip files. And you can just download every single episode back to episode one in nice, convenient zip files of 24 per zip file. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call. Remember, if you'd like to be on a show like this, 866-65-THINK. Make your message concise to the point or get your question out quick uh, and do it in two minutes or less. Let's go ahead and take that first call. Hello, Jack. This is John in Indiana. I just want to thank you again for the contributions that you uh, make to the survivalist community. And um, wanted to ask you a, a couple of real brief questions. One was, is with regards to uh, homebrew uh, biodiesel. I'm just kind of interested in your take on the sustainability of uh, trying to generate own uh, biodiesel for uh for use if uh, other diesels are unavailable, um, cost of the uh, equipment, the acquisition of necessary materials, either growing your own or, or finding a source for those. And then the other uh, question I'm interested in uh, uh, your take on is, have you any experience in actually uh, building your own uh, food dehydrators, um, especially for some of us uh, frugal-minded uh, folks out here uh, would uh, like to get your insight in uh, terms of uh, how effective it is to actually put together something using, uh, you know, plastic trays, some sort of a heat source, and uh, a fan. So, um, again, I'd be uh, real interested in hearing what you have to say. Thanks, Jack. Um, it's a good question. Uh, the first part, I don't have a tremendous amount of knowledge on biodiesel. I do think it makes dramatically more sense overall than ethanol uh, for a variety of reasons. Like, it doesn't corrode and destroy vehicles, and it can be, you know, moved in 
ways that we already move our fuel and it's not subject to you know breaking down in like 15 minutes the way ethanol does so i do think it's a better choice now home brewing it there's two ways you can do that uh there's like starting from you know raw materials which is kind of sounds like part of what you're asking about anyway where you you know you're starting out with uh with a crop that produces oil let's say uh sunflower seeds or uh canola or any any kind of crop corn that produces oil you're extracting the oil and then you're, you're refining it into biodiesel. I think that is fairly, uh, fairly well beyond the, the means of most people that they could do in a small, uh, system at home. The way most people that do this do it are they go out and they get oil that's been spent from restaurants and things like that. The oil from the, the, the fry bins, the stuff that they would otherwise have to throw away or pay a disposal fee for. They filter it and they add some things to it to, uh, to turn it into biodiesel and basically, a lot of the old vehicles would almost run that stuff. If you just filtered it really good, you could dump it in there and run it. Um, not advising you to do it, but some of the older vehicles would. The big thing is, one of the things is make sure it's clean and pure. And then the other thing is to ensure that when the temperature drops to like 30 degrees, if you've ever seen, take, if you want to understand this, I mean, just a simple, you know, first grade science experiment to understand this fully, go get a bottle of oil, olive, Crisco, corn oil, whatever, you know, walnut oil, anything you use to cook with, Stick it in the refrigerator for a few hours and then go look at it. It turns into like a pasty gel. So one of the things that has to be done with that stuff is to make sure that it won't turn into a gel, gum up and, and clog up your injectors and things on your diesel motor. That is actually very effective, though I don't know how sustainable it is if we get into a shit hit the fan. Because at that point, any kind of petroleum product is going to go to a premium. But in the interim, it is it makes a, a good way to do it. As far as even if you had the capacity... To actually start with raw materials and make your own biodiesel. The number I've heard thrown around is it takes about four acres. Four acres to produce a gallon. Now let's say that's completely wrong. Uh, I don't remember where I heard it, so it could be wrong. Let's say it's wrong by 25%. You could make one gallon of biodiesel with an acre. That's a lot of food that you have to give up to end up with biodiesel. Let's say it's a half an acre. And let's say you have 10 acres to work with. Well, that means you can make 20 gallons of fuel a year. And you give up, you know, 10 acres of food production. I just don't think it makes sense, especially at the, the, the individual level. I think if we can figure out how to do it out of things like switchgrass and stuff like that, and maybe even ethanol, you know, if we can be better about our processes, uh, it, it might make sense if we could take land that doesn't really grow food and grow uh, crops that don't require any attention and, and, and at a very large scale do it. But for the small scale producer, I just don't think it makes sense uh, at all. I, I actually think for the small scale producer, alcohol conversion is easier to do. And some version of home-based ethanol uh, would be a better way to make fuel. And uh, I still say, yeah, shit hit the fan. Uh, Moonshot is going to be worth more than uh, than gasoline. Just, just saying. Uh, but for the interim... And for like saving money, you know, using the uh, the, the the oil from uh, restaurants is a viable method. There's lots of information online about how to do that. And if you're going to do it at all, that's what I would recommend you start with. Another thing I've heard done, <clears throat> I mentioned recently, uh, somebody asked about the the Cuvies, uh, CUCV, uh, the the basically GM pickup trucks that uh, the Army, the Air Force, I think the Navy used them as well. I'm not sure if the Marine Corps uses them anytime recently. They used them in the past. I worked on them way back in 89. 
a guy that owns one of those wrote me and said he has a whole system set up, and he just basically goes to places where they have used motor oil, like, you know, a Jiffy Lube. He gets their used motor oil, and he does a 50% motor oil, 50% diesel fuel, but he does have to clean the, the motor oil, and those old diesels run that stuff just fine. He doesn't quite get the mileage you would get, but you're getting the diesel fuel effectively for half price. And those things aren't, I don't know that he's really having a dink in mileage because they weren't exactly highly fuel efficient to begin with. But, uh, so those kinds of methods I think make sense. Solar dehydrators, um, the big thing with a solar dehydrator is you want to make damn sure that it's getting hot enough in there and not like a hundred thousand degrees, right? You're talking like a hundred, about a hundred degrees internal temperature. Uh, or more. If it's 100 degrees out, then you need to be by 110. It's got to be at least 10 over, and it's got to be at least 90 degrees uh, to do a really good job. It all works. The problem is if you do not have an efficient enough design to get the air moving through there efficiently, and it doesn't get dehydrated efficiently enough, the food will begin to mold before it dehydrates. So it's about efficiency. It's hard to explain uh, the construction method of a solar dehydrator, but there's tons of plans out there. They all work, but what I'll tell you is anything you can do to increase efficiency is and airflow is going to make them more efficient. So something very simple, like getting a small 6-volt battery, uh, a rechargeable one like they use in a deer feeder, and a small solar panel for that, and a little 6-volt fan, and putting that in the bottom and blowing air through there. Um Running that during the day is one thing, but if you had a little switch on there and at night, when your food's sitting out there overnight, if you went out there and turned that fan on and kept the airflow going and relied on solar energy to do it, that would be not done it yet. That's one of the little projects I have planned once we move. That would be one way to improve efficiency. Um, but basically, all you're doing is creating an environment where the sun warms things and the cooler air from below is sucked through and put out above. They work very well. Again, lots of plans are available online. Um, I'll see what I can dig up for you on some decent plans and uh, make them available uh, for you uh, in today's show notes. Let's go ahead and take another question. Yes, good morning, Jack. This is John from northern New York on the Canadian border. I'm just uh, asking a question of what you think about EHRs, electronic health records and privacy I'm very concerned about this, and uh, I've actually stopped going to the doctors because of it. Uh, I'm concerned about the EHRs and possibly uh, an opt-out provision. If you know anything about it, where you can opt out and keep your paper records. Thanks, Jack. Have a nice weekend. Bye. Well, first let me say, if I were sick and I needed medical attention, I sure as hell would not uh, abstain from medical treatment because of concern that somebody might put down that I had a, a broken bone set or was given a medication. Um, I am a huge advocate of privacy, and I don't like to see any encroachment on it, but I don't see a huge red flag with your health records being kept electronically. Your, your health records generally are about your health. And I guess we could get into a, a place with long-term uh, you know, government insurance and things like that when they actually bring the public option in and destroy uh, independent private health care insurance, and, and they sooner or later will. And it's somebody looking at those records and deciding you don't get treatment. Well, um, that's going to happen anyway. This is not like they're 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 putting down um, you know what your opinion of the government is. Now with psychiatric things, 
some of that stuff could come into that. And I guess that's a concern. And, and patients, to me, do have a right to privacy with things like that. But I am not overly alarmed at the fact that somebody might know that Joe Blow has high cholesterol. And uh, anything you can think of that that would be used against Joe Blow for, um, eventually, if he's seeking treatment, it's going to be used against him anyway. All right, if it's going to be to deny coverage, they're very good at doing that already. So, um, and there is some advantage to electronic health records. If you're uh, injured and you're a thousand miles from home, the fact that somebody could plug you in, look you up, and find out your complete medical history may indeed save your life. For those that don't want this, and I can understand why you wouldn't, uh, there is an opt-out provision, and it is completely and totally unrestricted. How you go about it, I'm not sure. Why? Because I haven't been to the doctor in about 10 years, believe it or not. Unless I need to go, I don't go, and I haven't needed to go. Now, I'm not saying you should emulate and follow my uh, lead there, but I'll tell you what, if I'm sick enough to need the doctor, or if I'm injured, uh, I'm going to go to the doctor. So, um, that's how I feel about that. Now, would I personally choose the opt-out provision? I don't know. I don't know. And um, my other concern is, is it going to have an effect on your insurance, uh, your private insurance? Will they say, since you don't do this, we don't insure you? I, I really don't know. Uh, but I think there's bigger privacy concerns to worry about. Odds are you're already being tracked on the Internet, and that gives the, the government far more information you'd prefer that they don't have uh, than the fact that you uh, had gallbladder surgery or something like that. I'm not saying there's nothing to be concerned at here, okay? I want to be clear on that. What I am saying is there's a lot of things that are far more concerning to me with privacy than my health records. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Chuck from Long Island, New York. I uh, wanted to know if you wanted to talk about uh, maybe choices that you make regarding employers um, as far as survivability. Um, specifically, I'm talking about um, becoming a police officer or a uh, hospital personnel, um, somebody who has um, lots of access to um, strategic um, resources uh, during circumstances that are unfavorable for most. Um, you know, specifically police officers, you've got um, a large group of people that are willing to help you uh, at any given moment, as well as medical personnel who can enlist the help of uh, police as well. Um, you know, and they're kind of given preference over a lot of different things, medications and um, food and shelter and that kind of a thing um, in certain scenarios. So if you'd like to talk about that a little bit, I'd like to hear what your uh, take is. Thanks. Well, like most things in life, there's a double-edged sword. And that is that in a shit-at-the-fan scenario, if you're a police officer, you're going to be out there in the middle of it, and uh, you're going to be a target. Uh, you're going to be a target because you're trying to help, or you're going to be a target because, against your will, you're going to be ordered to do something that you shouldn't really do. So... Does that mean I don't think good, honorable people should become police officers? Absolutely not. And I think most police officers are good, honorable people, and we need more of them. So I would highly support anybody going into law enforcement, especially if they want to do it with honor, and they want to stay a cut above just doing what they're told. And to think and to realize that they take an oath. And that oath is will invoke the Constitution. And that the first duty of an officer of any type 
Uh, first duty of a service member of any type, whether it's military or, or, or civilian law enforcement, is to the Constitution. And as long as you remember that, I support the decision. But from a logistical standpoint of, is this the right career for me, understand that you are the tip of the spear and a shit at the fan. You're, you're there before they call the National Guard in. And you're far less protected than the National Guard is. So it's a great career. Um, but... In a pandemic, you're going to be out enforcing quarantine, which means you're not quarantined, which means you're exposed. We move to the hospital. In a illness scenario, you're even worse off. Um, now, it's true that you have access to treatment and, and medications that others may not. But if we're dealing with something that we don't have an effective treatment for, which would be the worst of the worst with pandemics, uh, you're also exposed to it constantly by people coming to the hospital. And um, if we don't have a proper treatment and the infection has a high lethality rate, if you're exposed to it and contract it, you can die in the hospital with everybody else. So these are some things we have to think about on the other edge of the sword. There are some real advantages, and here's how I would maximize them. Um, start with law enforcement. Small department. Um, if I had my, my way and I was going to be a law enforcement officer, I'd try to go work for a small town with a police force numbering somewhere between 5 and 30. And that has a lot of redundancy for simply unemployment. Uh, you're less likely to get laid off. Think about it this way. If you're in a, a small town with a, a force of 10, and they have to do a 10% reduction, you only had to be there longer than one other person to have seniority and not be the guy that takes the hit. Also, it's pretty easy to do a 10% pay cut when it's 10 guys and they all know each other and everybody's willing to do it. So there's a lot of advantages there. You're also going to deal with... I wouldn't say less dangerous situations every day. There's a lot of small towns with meth heads in them, and domestic violence situations are probably the worst thing for an officer and the one they dread the most about responding to. So uh, you still have day-to-day -day danger. That's part of the job. But if the whole thing falls apart, it's much easier to keep a lid on a town of a couple thousand than a couple million. So there's a lot of advantages there. Same thing with the hospital. Small town hospitals, I think you're going to be a lot better able to deal with situations and in the initial stages you're more likely to be able to offset some things and, and send your overflow to larger facilities rather than being the one having the overflow pushed off on you um, and again with stability actually small town uh, hospitals are generally very very stable as employment you don't make as much money but you have more stability so if you're thinking like a survivalist Both of those professions, the smaller rural communities, are better places to go. Now, here's the good news. There's tons of employers available in small rural communities. And this employment will get you the opportunity to go into these smaller communities, make a relatively good, stable income, have the advantages that they possess, and be able to live a lifestyle outside of the center of the city. The downside, especially with law enforcement, you may have to go work in a larger city first, to get some experience because some of those places, those jobs are a little bit more competitive to get. They don't hire 2,000 new officers a year uh, like they did recently in Dallas where they you know just threw it open. In Fort Worth, I think they hired like 500. Where, you know, it's just like, hey, come take a test and see if you qualify. So it may be easier to get in. So then the thing is getting some experience and constantly looking for a way out. 
So you don't get roped in. There is the fraternity type thing going on between officers. It's harder to leave. The bigger the roots you put down in the city, the harder it is to move. So kind of seeing it like a two-year military deployment for your first uh, mission, so to speak, and having the plan to exodus as soon as you can find the right place to live that will give you a job, uh, that's going to be important going in. With medical, much easier to make that move. Uh, because there's so no matter where you go, there's a hospital and they're probably short on something. So... Good professions, but there's my kind of survivalist view of them. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Paul from Melbourne, Australia. I've read it more of a text than a... Um, I've downloaded the whole of Wikipedia onto my laptop using a piece of software called Okawix. That's www.okawix.com. Um, um, I think it's a pretty useful thing. I use it all the time. And obviously, if it's on your laptop um, or your computer, then you don't have to have an internet connection. I think it's safe to see any changes that may happen to the internet or, or Wikipedia. And um, so I thought you might find that useful, and the listeners might also find that useful. So uh, keep up the good work, Jack. Uh, still love the show. Okay, bye. Well, we had a few little breakups there. I imagine he called in on Skype, and uh, but we got the gist of that one, and that's a great tip. Uh, if you did have any under, any trouble understanding the name of the software, Aquawix, which is O-K-A-W-I-X, that would be Oscar Kilo Alpha Whiskey India X-Ray. Um, I will put a link in today's show notes. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this on uh, both my, my hard drive computer and my laptop. What a great, great asset. You can do it either with or without Images and I know some people are thinking, can I get this for Mac? Can I get this for Windows? Is this just for Linux? Uh, they have Windows, Linux, and Mac versions, and they also have this available in 253 languages. Which means to me, if you downloaded the Spanish version and the English version, by looking at tools simultaneous, they could actually be quite valuable for um, communicating with somebody in another language. Uh, as a kind of translation uh, type of, of arrangement. Uh, not quite like having a little thing you type in and it converts it or whatever, but uh, it does seem like there would be some value to the uh, the secondary language thing there. But I'm going to do this. Uh, thanks for calling in, and uh, awesome that you called from Australia. I think it's so cool that we have listeners over there. And, uh, folks, I recommend that you uh, take a look at this and uh, what could be better than making sure that you have all of that knowledge. Uh, Wiki's got some problems. Um, I, I'm not in love with the Wikipedia people. I think that they have an agenda uh, that, that comes through, and certain things are not allowed to go in Wiki, and other things are, and it's not as democratic as they try to make it out to be. But there is a tremendous amount of knowledge there. So consider getting Aquawix and consider getting Wikipedia uh, before the government takes it away someday and censors it, because God knows that could happen. I mean, you guys know that right now in Egypt... They just shut down the cellular networks and the internet uh, because there's some uh, civil dis- I don't even know the whole story yet. I just heard it this morning as I was on my way into my office uh, from the living room. I heard a little blurb of it on uh, Bloomberg. But yeah, Egypt has shut down the internet. So it could happen here. Somebody sent me an email today and said, don't say it can never happen here. It almost sounded like they said I said it. I, I don't know if that's what they meant this morning. But uh, this is that's one great reason alone. And maybe there's an, a market out there um, for software that would do this with uh, with some other things other than just Wikipedia. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Thanks for that tip, Paul. Hi, Jack. This is David from Alabama. My question is about what items and principles to consider when designing and installing drip irrigation. 
We plan on adding another four raised beds to our current six, and the watering chores are becoming a problem with our travel and work schedules. Some items I've been kind of concerned about are, you know, do you start at one end of the beds and run a long supply line in a serial fashion, or do you put in a, a central hub and maybe branch off, or how do you determine you know, what area that one nozzle will cover when you are buying your system? And you know, you've mentioned water timers before. Would you use like one for the whole garden, or maybe a, multiple ones if you had different zones you had to water? And you know, is it better to water once or twice a day for longer periods of time, or multiple for uh, shorter intervals? You know, I really appreciate your input on these kind of topics. And um, if you got any publications or resources that you found particularly helpful, I'd appreciate that as well. Keep up the great shows. Thanks. Um, it's really hard to give a concrete answer on a lot of that because it's so subject to how how long your individual runs are, how long your beds are, how much water pressure you have, uh, because the different pressure is going to flow at different rates. Uh, one of the things you definitely want to do when you buy this equipment is go find a good local retailer who is knowledgeable and can help you and advise you. Uh, sketch out your your uh, your layout. And discuss it with them, and they're going to point you in the right direction to a large degree. There are a few things I can tell you. One, uh, anything other than maybe a couple beds, you're going to want to do some kind of zoning because each section has a finite capacity and has to run for a certain amount of time based on the total water volume that's available and the water pressure and things like that. As far as timers, what you can do is basically get a timer with multiple valves. So that if you're going to run them, let's say, for 30 minutes apiece, it will run zone 1 for 30 minutes and then run zone 2 and then 3 and then 4 and the like. As far as whether to do it once a day or twice a day, depends on where you are, how much natural uh, rain you're getting, things like that. But once a day is generally sufficient with drip irrigation, especially when it's highly mulched, because it's so efficient to begin with. Uh, the next thing is... You probably want to run, let's for raised beds, to give you an example, you want to run your supply line along one side of them. And then you want, let's say you're going to run uh, four lines the long way along a raised bed. Well, you don't want to run them like uh, like a circle, like back and forth. You want to puncture, they use a little tool, you puncture four holes in your supply line, and you run an individual drip line for each of those four. And then you run them down the length of your bed. Now, why would you do that? Because each one, you can put little stakes in to hold them in place. If you need to remulch or turn soil or whatever, each individual line can be pulled back out of the way by itself and then placed back in place when you're done with it. Another thing is you never bury drip irrigation. That always goes on the surface of your mulch because if the holes get plugged, obviously, now we're not irrigating. You also want to flush it at least at the beginning and the end of each season. So that means going to the end of your drip lines and unkinking this little kink you put in them and letting the water flow for a few moments out of the end at full speed to make sure that anything that got in there is out. A great resource I can give you that will reinforce a lot of this is Backyard Permaculture. This is by a guy, an Australian guy. Uh, I've mentioned it before. I'll put a link in today's show notes. 
It starts about seven minutes in and probably runs for about five to to seven minutes of the total sh- thing, which is about an hour long presentation on how he transformed his backyard. The whole thing's worth listening to, but the irrigation is extensive the way that it's explained, both using conventional drip irrigation and using gray water drip irrigation and keeping the two separate from each other. That's a great resource, but your biggest resource will be your local retailer. Do not buy this stuff from Walmart. They sell it, it's cheap, but go find a knowledgeable source to help you with the whole planning process. I wish I could tell you that uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, that type of thing, you're going to get a lot of help there, but that's highly variable. And this is how I feel about those two box stores. You'll go to one for one thing, and there'll be one guy in that one that knows it like the old hardware store guy did. And he will help you, and he will be on the ball, and man, you can get any piece of information you want. You go back to that same store for something else where it's a different person and they're a complete buffoon. So you can try that, but if you don't get good help, don't buy. Go find a local irrigation store and they'll help you. They'll point you in the right direction. And taking them, even a crude hand drawing of what you have, will give them all the information they need to set you on the right course and to help you scale your system. Maybe you can't afford to do the whole thing at once, but they'll tell you, here's what to do first, here's what to do second, that type of thing. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Susan from Windsor, Ontario, Canada. I'm a longtime listener. I'm a teacher and a mom. Tonight I was watching the show Arthur with my son. Many parents will be familiar with the show. And the episode tonight was called The Blackout. Arthur and his family are in a city where there's a heat wave. They lose their power for a while, and they're not prepared. But they go over to a neighbor's house, and he's got a basement full of canned goods, extra batteries, a wind-up radio, and much more. So Arthur's family learns a little bit about being prepared. People seem to always be asking about how to get their kids thinking about these kinds of things. And this episode was just perfect. I've looked it up. It's on YouTube. And again, it's the show called Arthur. And the episode is called The Blackout. I hope this helps some some parents out there. Thanks for your show, and keep up the good work. Um, very cool. I will definitely find that. I haven't done it yet, but I'm sure I won't have much trouble. I'll find that on YouTube and uh, place a link for people in today's show notes. Let me say I'm a little surprised. Um, not to hear that the cause of the blackout wasn't global warming, given the source of that cartoon. Um, but given that it wasn't, and they're not trying to make survivalists look bad and actually uh, share uh, the concept of being prepared and presenting it in a positive light is very, very encouraging. And so I highly endorse this as something for your kids. I'll take a look at it myself, and if any alarms go off with uh, that stuff, I'll, I'll recant, but I, I doubt it will or it wouldn't have come so highly recommended by one of our listeners. So thank you very much for that recommendation. Uh, again, I will find that episode and put a link. And uh, folks, if you know of anything else like this, if you've seen a kid's show or Anything that would help kids understand being prepared is kind of cool and done at a level where they're receptive to it, like this Arthur cartoon, please let me know. And with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Thanks for calling in with that one. Awesome tip for the audience. Hi, Jack. This is Kevin uh, in West Central Arkansas. Uh, just kind of a dumb question. Um, I have a neighbor that has a, a security light that is always on at night. Now, I had one and had it shut off because I like it really dark at night. That's one of the reasons I'm out here in the sticks. 
anyway, um, what what kind of a tree um, would I plant um, to to sort of grow fast and uh, be able to block out that light and still grow in this well <laughs> this soil that we have out here in West Central uh, Arkansas? It's pretty tough stuff. Um, anyway, that was my question, Jack. Um, I appreciate uh, the show and all you do. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye. I know what you're saying about the harsh soil. You're talking probably about a lot of rock, silica, sandy, uh, gravelly stuff there. And it, it can be tough to grow in, but it's actually not that bad. And if you look all throughout the uh, the area, any place man isn't, you see trees galore, which tells you trees grow just fine there if you give them the right opportunity. About the fastest growing tree that I know of is called an empress tree. Uh, and that will grow very large very, very quickly, especially if you will take it and, uh, and, uh, into its second and third year with a little bit of, uh, conspicing to encourage outward growth. And, uh, it has these big, beautiful lilac looking flowers on it in the spring and, and that may help a lot. The key though is any kind of a deciduous tree, which this is, is great during the spring, summer, and fall, and then when the leaves fall off, all you've got is the structure of the tree. So maybe what we need to do is kind of look at a layering system because that empress tree is going to grow faster than uh, than a conifer. But if we could get a couple conifers in there as well, some type of a, of a large spruce or something that's, that's going to stay very full, like a Christmas tree type tree, uh, it might be uh, a really advantageous. So those would be maybe, and depending on how the sun flows and the empress tree is going to grow faster and shade the other one out, you want to make sure that the one that you put close to the house is really based on your solar activity and letting the other tree that's going to grow slower get the sun in the front. Another option would be, the I can't remember what the scientific name is for them, but these shrubs that they just call red tips. Those things will grow about 12 feet tall. They're used in landscaping all over the place, and they're very, very, uh, very, very capable of growing anywhere. They do have a downside, um, and I don't know what it is that kills them, but every once in a while they just die. Um, they don't die like you know one guy, and it's not, it doesn't seem like a disease because one guy's will die, and the other one where the guy planted it at the same time, and they were the same size, and they were almost trimmed all the way across the same height, and they almost look like a continuation of each other. One dies, another doesn't. But on occasion, they just up and die on you. So, again, you'd want to use some layering. So those are some things. Bamboo would be good if you went with a, a few clumps of clumping bamboo. Um, you know, even though in some of that stuff's really cold-hardy, way cold-hardier than you uh, have to worry about in Arkansas, that's going to grow fast. That might be your best option is bamboo for this application. But I would strongly consider kind of a double-layered approach so that at any point that one is less effective, the other kind of stands in. So some sort of evergreen conifer, that type of thing, somewhere in this process. And it also depends, obviously, how close this guy is to you. If he is, uh, if he's a uh, thousand yards away and that light's just pointing at you, it's pretty easy to deal with. If he's 50 feet, it's a little bit more difficult and you have less space to work with. You may also just discuss with him very, very neighborly like if he would consider not taking it down or getting rid of it, but just maybe changing the way it's pointing. Uh, if you've got some space in between you, simply pointing it down a little bit more at his own property would probably do a lot to mitigate the situation. 
in the country especially with requests like this, people are out there because like, I want to do what the hell I want, so I moved here. So you want to be really nice about it, and but, but just say, hey, it does hit the house, and maybe it would be better for both of us and more effective for you if you're appointing it more at your, uh, at your location. Now, the other thing that you might kind of bring up, again, very tactfully, and you might want to do the same thing with your own security light system, is motion detectors for those things are dirt cheap. And there's no reason for that light to be on all the time. In fact, if it's on all the time, it actually illuminates your property, and to me, there's security risk. Because now as the bad guy, I can look at your property, I can evaluate it, and I can see where the, the, the comb of that light is. I know how to move in and around it. I can use it if you're totally asleep in the middle of the night to see what I'm stealing, and you have no way to know that I'm there. If you put motion detectors in, when that light comes on, now you know something's there. So that might be another kind of mutually beneficial situation, but be very, very tactful with that conversation and try to be helpful and be very clear that, hey, if you don't want to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still be okay with this. We're still going to be good neighbors. Uh, I'm just asking maybe we could find a way to make this a little bit better for, for both of us. Uh, I think that's the best solution, though, if the guy's receptive, is motion detectors. And it's a much better security solution, and it's going to save him money. It's going to save him a lot of money because it costs money to run that night light all night long. Where if you're only using it when it's necessary, uh, it's going to be much more effective. And again, the concept that when someone that's not supposed to be there comes there, not only are they shocked by being illuminated, but you know that they're there. Let's go ahead and take another one. Jack, um, long-time listener. Um, well, 100 episodes deep, which seems like a long time. But a uh, question for you. I have filed uh, Chapter 13 bankruptcy, and I would have never done that if I listened to your show sooner. But live, you learn. Um, basically, I am paying about $2,000 a month, which is well over half my income. And uh, I have a house, and if I keep paying it, I'll have it paid off in four years. I don't know if that's better to do that or if it's better to uh, instead change to Chapter 7, get rid of the house, rebuild my credit, and that way it can get some preps and uh, can take care of things that way a little bit better. Um, any advice you could have would be greatly appreciated. Have a great day. Let's see. You can spend $2,000 a month for four years and own your house outright. Do it. I mean, that's my short answer. I don't know your entire situation. I don't know if maybe you make $2,001 a month, and then it's just not financially acceptable. You can't live on it. But assuming, and it seems like you are living this way, um, anybody that I know of, if the house is worth having, if it's not falling apart, if it's not you know something that needs to be burned to the ground, um, two grand for four years and you own your house, do it. Um, I want to comment on something else, and I don't want you to take like I'm getting on you here, because uh, it's more for everybody than just for you, and I, I can hear the some of the pain in your voice, and I don't want to make it any worse, but I do want to point something out. Everybody that I hear that goes into bankruptcy says, and rebuild my credit. Um, I don't understand that. I really don't. I don't understand that mentality at all, because it's like the drug dealer, let's say drugs were legal. Or and a drug user and a drug user who had such a bad habit with drugs, he lost his permit to use drugs and he had to go into rehab. And they said if you complete rehab, eventually you can earn the right to get your your permit back. 
Well, that, that, that's how I feel about a person that ends up in bankruptcy due to credit worrying about getting their credit back. Credit's what got you into this mess. Now, I understand that you might want to buy another home in the future. But the best way you can ensure that you can buy another home in the future is to own a paid-for home now, which you can do in four years, which you're going to be dealing with bankruptcy for seven as far as it being on your credit report and things like that. So in four years, you can own a home. Now, if you own your home outright, even if it's a cheap home, like the cheapest home I can think of that somebody would live in in America today, it's probably about $50,000. And I know there's some places where you can do it for less than that. But let's say it's fifty grand, And it's probably more since it's $4,000 or $2,000 a month for four years. That's what, $24,000 a year uh, in house payments? Uh, so that's almost $100,000. Is that right? Did I screw that up? Um, that's 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 not wrong. That's ninety six grand, two thousand a month for four years is ninety six thousand um, dollars. This must be some house. Uh, I, 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 I even with bankruptcy, I wonder if maybe you can renegotiate the terms of that to make the burden less. But I'm going to tell you, if you can live that way, still do it. I mean, how awesome would that be to own your own home? And once you own, my point, what I was getting to is, let's say the house is worth a hundred thousand uh, dollars. Even in this crappy market, it's worth a hundred grand. And you wanted to go get a nicer home for, let's say, a hundred and seventy-five. Well, that house is your hundred thousand dollar down payment right there. I, I have to believe the house is worth more than that for you to be in this scenario to begin with. Uh, I'm not a bankruptcy expert, but that's going to be what I'm going to kind of come off with you on this. Uh, but I also want people out there that have high house payments to think about what I just did. Four years, $2,000 a month, $96,000. I know if you live in New York City, this is hard to comprehend. I know if you live in Los Angeles or San Luis Obispo or Miami, this is hard to comprehend. But there are many places in America today where $96,000 buys a pretty damn decent home. And there are tons of places in America where 125 buys a decent home. So, what I'm telling you is that by saving $2,000 a month in four years, you can own a home outright. And that is something that people feel like is impossible, and yet they have a $2,000 house payment on a home for 30 years. We really have to think about these things. And again, those of you that have had to go through bankruptcy, I want you to really be careful with the concept of rebuilding your credit. Because in some ways, I understand that there's certain aspects where debt is good. And to me, they are buying a car when you have to, and there's no other choice, and a home. And those are the only two places for debt. And I'm iffy on the car, but I'm solid on property. All the rest of it is bullshit. It is a drug. And it's just like an alcoholic if we had the 12-step process for uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and when you got your final chip, it allows you to drink again. Don't do it. It doesn't make any sense at all. Let's take the next question. As far as changing your style of bankruptcy, call an attorney. I really I really can't comment on that because I don't have enough knowledge about bankruptcy law. Let's take another uh, question. Hey, Jack. My name is Rick from southeastern Pennsylvania. Um I live in suburb of Philadelphia. I have a house, a small .1 acre lot, um, not a lot of room for surviving on my own, producing my own food. So um, I have a question about uh, what to do with some money. Um, my wife and I have saved up about $40,000 of just cash um, sitting in the bank, plus investments and stuff like that. 
we have college loans. My wife has college loans. Mine are being paid off by the military college loan repayment program. Um, and then we have a house debt. Um, we still owe about $215,000, on the house. Um, both are low interest. I'm looking to see what to do with that money. Um, what would be best to do? Pay off the debt? Um, invest in some land? Just buy, uh, you know, a few acres? Uh, maybe um, put on solar on the house? Something like that. Just looking for some feedback from you uh, on this, um, what you think would be best. All right, thanks a lot. Well, to do this right, I'm going to have to answer this question two entirely different ways. In the first one, I'm going to assume that other than retirement savings, right, you know, your 401k, your IRA, or money that's even not in a retirement vehicle that's designed for long-term retirement, other than that, you do not ha you you do not have a 90-day emergency fund, and this is all the liquid cash that we want to call it that that you possess. If that's the case, then what you're going to do with most of this money is keep it. Because let's look at your house payment. You're probably right about where the last guy that was in bankruptcy was. You're probably at about a $2,000 to $2,500 a month house payment, maybe more, because where you live, I know you're going to pay out the butt for, for property taxes. Um, your property taxes could, pro could probably be in the neighborhood of four to $5,000 a year or more. So that's part of your expenses as long as you're going to stay put. So we're looking at a big chunk of money a month just for that. You got to pay your electric, your phone. So you might need at least seven to eight thousand dollars a month for an emergency fund uh, to get by for 90 days. And to me, six months is better. And if you can have a six-month emergency fund and then start over with money that you can use for these other things, I think that's a much more uh, responsible and better way to do things. Now. Assuming this is $40,000 more, dollars, assuming you do have some sort of emergency fund put away, and that makes this money a little more usable, uh, I'm still not going to say use it all, but paying off your wife's student loans, you didn't say how much her portion was, but that makes sense. And even if you don't have an emergency fund, if it's like $20,000, you might want to do it. Don't do years. Military's paying it. Let them do it. I mean, let the military, if, if you can get someone else to pay your debt, let it happen. That's, that's, I have no problem with that whatsoever. So maybe it's you pay off the white student loan debt, but then you need to start saving more. Uh, as far as do you put solar on your home or buy some land to eventually build on and get the hell out of the, of the city, what do you want? If you see yourself in your home 10 years from now, solar is a great investment. If you see yourself getting out, Put your solar on your new property. I mean, that's that's a personal choice. But here's the big overriding theme I want to point out. I get versions of this question all the time, and usually it has to do with the fact that people start listening to my show, they listen to people like Dave Ramsey, and they keep doing their contributions to their long-term retirement, and they keep that steady, and they pay down debt, and they start living in with their means, and all of a sudden, they realize they have more income than they ever thought they did. And this is true when people make $40,000 for a family or $400,000 for a family, and everything in between. Unless they're absolutely dead broke on minimum wage, all of a sudden, this thing called surplus cash shows up. And then they start thinking, what the hell do I do with it? Hold some of it in cash, or do some six-month staggering with CDs. Uh, go out and, and, and break up your money and do um, a six-month, a one-year, a two-year, a three-year CD. 
And as each one comes up for renewal, renew it to the longest term. And that way, 25% of your money is always available within six months at the maximum with zero penalty. And, and you can, you know, that's one way to do it. Um, be careful which banks you use for that. Small, independent, very, very strong, individually solvent banks are the places to do that. And you can always take the money out with some level of penalty. There's often banks that will allow you a withdrawal with, with a minimal penalty if done after a certain period of time. So always get that information. Hold it in just plain cash. Put it in a freaking, uh, a strong a firebox in the home, but have some cash. Don't be afraid to hold cash. The fool puts all his eggs in one basket. So cash is not evil. That, that's a big thing. Don't let, don't let the money feel like it's burning a hole in your pocket, I guess, so to speak. Um, but back to your original question. If you do not have an emergency fund, you have to look at this as some portion of this is your emergency fund. Do your monthly budget. If you haven't already done so, know what you need to get by each month. Uh, with relatively nice living conditions, not maybe what you have today, a few things you could cut, but all of your core and some luxury for 90 days, reserve at least that, and strongly consider going with four to six months of reserves. That will get you through so many things that have destroyed others. And then you're not going to be the guy that just called in that was in bankruptcy. As for buying land or buying the home, Where do you see yourself in three, five, and ten years? Those are the things you need to look at to make that decision. I cannot make that decision for you. Personally, I can tell you I my plan would be get the hell out of Philadelphia. But that's my personal thing. If you love Philadelphia, that's different. There is a lot of reasonably affordable land out toward Lancaster where you still have access to the city and it's a much nicer quality of life. You know, once you get fairly far uh, west of Valley Forge area, more toward Lancaster, there's a lot of stuff out there that's still reasonably priced. Not as good as the south as far as pricing, but really beautiful land, great farmland, great places to live. It's amazing what you could do with an acre or two out there. So those are my final thoughts on that. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Ryan from Washington again. Uh, once again, I want to thank you for the show. Uh, I wanted to ask you to comment about what's going on in Australia right now. I, uh, I served in the Marine Corps on active duty for a number of years. I'm a reservist now, and I actually had to, the opportunity to train in the area. And it's very humbling to see some of these cities now and see the pictures of them under 30 feet of water and you know how this relates to some of our folks that live in areas that are similar and can be devastated by massive floods. Also, uh, kind of a wake-up call to me, uh, a close friend of mine, he's a uh, local recruiter. He's got a year-and-a-half-old girl had a massive stroke over the weekend, and, you know, you talk about the, uh, the small disasters being pretty significant, and I know it's knocked him on his butt, and it's made a lot of us stand up and take notice. Anyway, thank you again for what you do. Love the show. Oh, one more thing. Uh, you're talking about uh, testing your preps. Uh, people need to practice dialing 911. It's just me. Fine motor skills. You're in a stressful situation. One of those things that nobody ever practices. So, anyway, take care, Jack. Okay, we got a lot going on there. Uh, first thing I think of when I think of the floods in Australia is the people dealing with it. My heart goes out to all of you. I know we have some listeners in Australia, and if you've been affected by this or care about someone that has, um, my thoughts are with you. I don't 
I guess I haven't talked about it because it's just impossible to talk about everything that's going on everywhere. And um, so I don't have a lot of first-hand knowledge of what's going on there. Uh, it's It's been not really easy to do. But what we learned from it is one of the same things we learned from the Haitian earthquake, and that is that you can have a lot of things stocked and prepared and, 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 and ready to take care of yourself with, and to, to, with the bug-in mentality, and you still better have a bug-out plan. If you think about this, you could have had a home fully stocked with a year's worth of food, and, and the food is now ruined because it's all underwater, if you didn't have a plan to get out and take at least some of it with you. And that's why even when I moved to kind of a very remote location, uh, we're still planning on long-term setting up a second fallback location because it may be necessary. With those type of events, though, once you're in that remote location, generally it's easier to do because all you're looking at is distance. And uh, having a friend or a family member 100 miles away or so that you kind of have a mutual agreement with uh, can, can alleviate a lot of that because most of the situations that would make that perfect bug-out location no longer a good location are regional or localized. So... But we got to have a plan to get out. That's that's the big one there. And, <clears throat> you know, we always hear about stuff happening in places like Haiti. And I think we have this arrogance of like, well, uh, stuff like that happens in Haiti or, you know, some or Africa, some third world nation. Well, this is Australia, folks. If you go to Australia, people live in Australia exactly like we do. Some differences, cultural especially, but if you were in the middle of an Australian suburb until somebody walked up to you and said good day instead of hello... Uh, and you heard their accent, you would probably not know that you were anywhere else different. Uh, you might have even a hard time understanding direction because of where the sun was located. Uh, and that would, might be your first indication if nobody spoke to you that you were below the equator. I mean, Australia is a lot like America. And if it can happen there, it can happen here. That's, that's the big message, you know. When we hear about these things that are so far away, and I think we do it even in America. You know, the person that's, that's sitting in Georgia hears about floods in the Midwest and thinks, oh, those poor people, and doesn't realize that, you know, he could be next. So those are some big ones. Um, next up on the, the individual disaster. I, I, I can't imagine having a child that young and having that child have a stroke and everything that's going to go along with that. I, um, as a parent myself, it's crushing to even think about something like that. And uh, anything happening to your child, you know, you're supposed to outlive your child and they're supposed to have a better life than you. That's, I think that's a commonality with all parents. That's what we all want. And this is where prepping pays off with things that no one ever talks about. The person that goes through this with a good food supply uh, laid up and good cash reserves and low debt and, and, and a good little homestead going on and, 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 you know, all the things that we talk about can back off of work. You know, this guy's in the military, and they're probably going to, because he says he's a recruiter, and I assume you mean military recruiter, not a corporate recruiter. If they're, he's in the military, they're going to do a lot to help him through this, and they'll give him time that, you know, you might not get from a regular employer, and that's great, but we can't always depend on something like this. This could have happened while he was overseas if he's in the military. I mean, there's, no matter whether you're in the military or civilian, it doesn't matter. These types of things can just ground you out. So... That is a case for prepping uh, and where your neighbor could be just fine and your whole world is in a shambles. And the more prepared we are for the shit to hit the fan at a global level, the more prepared we are, God forbid, when it hits the, the fan at a personal level. And this is what I can tell everybody listening. Unless it's you that gets killed, 
and you're gone and your troubles are over, you will have a personal disaster in your lifetime, possibly several. Everybody will. And the better prepared we are for the big ones, the better we can get through and rebuild after what is considered by everybody but the people experiencing it to be the small ones. Last on, on dialing 911, I, I guess, um, what I don't advise is setting up a 911 speed dial button. Uh, my brother-in-law, the cop, did that, and several times his children picked up the phone and speed dialed 911, and once you do that, the police are coming. So I don't like that approach, but I guess... Uh, The concept of uh, at least looking at the phone once in a while and thinking 911, uh, probably not a bad idea. Makes me think of something, though, that I want to point out to some of you guys with um, with uh, office phone systems. A lot of the office phone systems, you dial 9 to get an outside line, and if you dial 9 and then 1 and you wait too long, it will dial the second one. A lot of these automated uh, you know, office systems will, and next thing you know, the police are showing up. So if you're calling a number that requires like a, a one for a country code uh, or something like that, some of these places you want to be careful and make sure you have the number in front of you before you dial it. Uh, we had, when I was with Sage Telecom, several times people going to make that outside call um, end up dialing 911. And it was some kind of investment in the system where they couldn't, um, they couldn't change that. They couldn't fix that and make it stop doing that. Uh, and I came up with a brilliant solution. I thought it was anyway, and I actually gave it to another employee and let him submit it. Uh, so he got his little, you know, brownie points for it. And we just changed it to you dial eight to get an outside line. So if anybody's dealing with that, that's just a off the cuff thing that made me think of. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. Uh, this is Nelson in Virginia. Um, I'm wondering if you could comment on chipper shredders, um, electrical. Gas powered, what the best ones are and what the options are. Uh, thank you. Uh, great question and uh, something we're looking deeply into because once we move, um, we don't see any reason to ever pay for mulch ever again with the massive amount of debris that's around to be chipped and shredded. So, uh, something I've been looking into a lot. I can just give you my own personal conclusions. One, uh, electric ones are good for, for, for uh, chipping or, or shredding up leaves and not much more. Most of the electric ones, if you look inside them, what does the shredding actually uh, is not much different than what you use with a weed eater. It's a string. And uh, they have limited horsepower. Now, if you, all you're doing is raking leaves up and dropping them in and you want to do leaf mulching, um, they're fine. And they're a lot less noisy and they have a lot less things to break on them and they're a lot more affordable But that's their limitation. That's what they're for. And if you want anything more than that, including small twigs and branches, don't do it. On the gas-powered ones, most of the stuff that's in between the five and $700 price point is probably suitable for the individual. And most of those are going to have, um, they're going to be large enough to be robust and strong Good heavy motors. Some of the models I like are Troy Built, DR. Uh, those are two that we're kind of uh, deciding between right now for ourselves. Um, DR is a little more expensive, uh, but it seems like it's a little bit better built of a machine. But most of them are going to have the ability with your branches, your, your shredding part, you know, you're throwing your, your leaves and your branches, your real small stuff into the big hopper. But when you're taking a, a, a stick and you're shoving it in there to chip it, uh, they're going to have the ability to do between one and a half to two inches, maybe down to one and a quarter. To me, that's as big as you ever need to do. 
And the reason that's as big as you ever need to do is because anything that's two inches to me is firewood. Uh, even inch and a half stuff to me, that's firewood. So the only thing I'm putting in there is stuff that's just, it's just not worth it, um, for firewood, but it's too big to go in the hopper. So I like to go up to like a two inch feed, one and a half to two inch feed on your chipper portion, because I know I'm going to be putting one inch stock in there probably, maybe one and a quarter stock maximum, so I've got overkill. And I like a little bit of overbuild in what I'm doing. So that is my level of what I'm looking for in a machine. Gas powered over electric every day, the horsepower is just far more efficient. Yeah, it's not as sustainable in some ways, but the electric ones of any size are fairly heavy draw. You're not going to be running a lot of that off a solar bank or something like that long term anyway. And storing extra gasoline is something you should be doing anyway. And if we get into a long term uh, shit at the fan, you're probably not going to be firing up any chipper shredder at all. Uh, they're very efficient to run, especially if you kind of get all your stuff together, turn them on, run it through straight up, instead of like dragging it a little bit at a time. So if you stage out, batch out your work, I find them to be very efficient and almost a must uh, for the serious homesteader that has access to a lot of stuff to chip and shred. If it's something you're going to use once a year, And that's it. I mean, your smaller property, there's not a lot of stuff there, maybe once or twice a year. They rent so cheap. Don't buy one. Go to Home Depot. Go to Lowe's. I think we rented one in Pennsylvania. It was like 25 bucks a day. And you could do a lot of chipping and shredding in a day. Uh, twice a year, 50 bucks. I don't even know what they're renting for now. We haven't looked because we're going to use ours so much, it's, it makes sense to buy. But if it was $50 a year and you're buying a $500 tripper shredder, uh, you would have to use it for 10 years to break even. So really make that part of your consideration because when you rent it, uh, if it breaks, you don't have to pay to fix it. You don't have to do the maintenance and all that other stuff. Uh, so if I would say if you're not going to use it at least four times a year, Uh, it's probably not worth the purchase price. Let's go ahead and take another call. Yeah, hello. I got two quick questions and a rant. You can uh, ignore the rant if you want to, but I have to say something. Um, first question is about the 6.7.6225 revolver. I picked up one of these, not revolver, automatic. I picked up one of these again amount for 200 bucks. I couldn't resist the deal. Um, this cartridge is somewhere between the range of a 9mm or 45 Um, it was made at Hugo, which is uh, any military surplus left, and usually they're the ones that made, they made the best. Um, and I got a question about this 6.254R. It's similar to a 3 odd 6 Can you buy uh, hunting rounds for that, or do you have to reload it? Because most of the uh, ammo I see on it is um, military surplus, which is full metal jacket, which I don't think you can use hunting. And my rant is, if I got enough time here, you said 30 to 60 seconds, is your comment that gold is not money. Um, I disagree with that. Um, there's a lot of people out there, brilliant people out there, that if you cut them off, you're missing out a lot of things that I disagree with you on that. What you're saying is that uh, gold doesn't need certain qualities and characteristics to make it gold, to make it independent. You're also saying that gold can't be independent of the system. Um, I, think, I don't think you're saying those things, but when you say gold is not money, that's what you're saying. A um, couple resources real quick if you disagree with me. Um, King Roll News has a lot of interviews from brilliant people on it if you want to listen to that. Also, uh, talk about a investor real quick if you haven't cut me off. Um, a guy called Doug Casey. This guy, he breaks the mold when it comes to investment 
financial uh, advisors. He's been to over 175 countries. He's lived in 12. He's been to countries why they were in the middle of a civil war, why looking for investments. Look, look him up if you have never heard of him. Um, my time's up. Thank you. Well, I'll take your rant. The first thing we're going to do is answer your question. You said you had two questions. Actually, I heard one. You mentioned uh, the uh, the handgun. Uh, the uh, what is that? The uh, Tokarov is actually what you're talking about there. I think it's a great handgun. If you want to know my opinion on it, I think they're dirt cheap as far as affordability, and I think that anybody that can buy one should while they're available and lay up some surplus ammo because it's not the easiest thing to come along. As far as the 7.62 by 54R, that's the uh, Mazen Nagant round, uh, Soviet round, and uh, it's a very very efficient round on par with the 308. Uh, anything the 308, the 7.6254R will do. I wouldn't say better, but it'll do it. And uh, it'll do a very good job of it. Yes, hunting ammunition is available. I'll put some links to what you can, uh, where you can find some soft point ammo for that stuff uh, in today's show notes. But even, you know, the, the source of, of a lot of that cheap ammo, the new factory ammo for that, uh, Wolf and Brown Bear, which are really kind of the same company with two different brands, um, there's a 203 grain soft point that would probably do anything you'd ever want uh, that round to do. I don't know really how great the quality of that bullet is. I don't know that I would want to uh, trust it on an animal the size of an elk without knowing more about the bullet's construction, its jacketing, and things like that. But the, the nice thing with this round is since it's a 30 caliber round, uh, you know, it's a 7.62 round, uh, anything that could be loaded for the 308 could be loaded for it. So hand loading may be something you want to look at. But there's several manufacturers that make reasonably good hunting ammunition for that round. Now on your rant, I'll let it go and I'm happy to respond to it. See, my problem, and I got to be careful that I don't turn this into a second show today and just wrap up quick with it, because uh, I could say a lot about it. But my problem is everything you said uh, it hinges upon dogma. And what I call gold worship, and I'm not saying you're an idolatrist and you're worshiping gold, but it's, it's the same uh, phenomenon as people that worship something without understanding it. Uh, it's all these brilliant people. You said that several times. Brilliant people, brilliant people. Hey, a lot of brilliant people said the stock market wasn't going to crash. A lot of brilliant people at one time in history said the earth was the center of the universe. A lot of brilliant people have said a lot of shit that proved to be wrong. Now, the thing is, most of what the people you're mentioning say, I don't disagree with. Gold and silver belong in your investment portfolio. Gold and silver belong as part of the financial reserves of the nation. Gold and silver mining are good investments at a national level or an individual level. Gold and silver have very strong cases that we can make for inherent underlying value. When I say gold is not money, it's because I am so freaking sick and tired of people being brainwashed to the point where they say it without even thinking. They don't even know what the hell they're saying. And most of you guys out there that would just say that in an instant, you, it, it's almost like it's chanted to you on TV. Gold is money. Gold is money. Um, gold is money. Gold is money. Um, I mean, that's how it's been marketed. And gold is not money. It isn't. Gold is a commodity with a strong track record of being used as a currency. And whether it can exist in or out of, of, of an economy is, is, is a ridiculous argument. 
I'll prove that to you real simple. If you came to me and I was selling my house for $140,000, which is, might be about what I'm going to sell it for, so if you're looking for a house in the Arlington, Texas area, folks, get in touch with me. If your budget's somewhere between $125 and $140, we'll have to do some final things to determine where we're going to list it at, but that's about what it's going to list for. So you came to me and I would say I listed it for $130. You say, Jack, I'll pay you in gold. I'd say, fine. But you know how much gold you're going to pay me? You're going to pay me whatever gold's trading on this day that you're going to make the exchange for $130,000 worth of it. I am going to relative, I'm going to make it relative to the currency and medium of exchange in the existing economy. Why? Because money is not the thing. Money is not the $100 bill in, in reality. Money is not the gold coin. Money is not the fiat currency or the debt backed currency or the trading instrument. Money is the agreement of society that something has value. The agreement is the money. And this is how quick gold can become worthless. Have a place where there's a thousand people and they're all cut off from everybody else and there's only enough food to feed 500 people and see what gold will buy you. It'll buy you nothing. Gold is no different than any other currency in reality. Now there's certain things that make it stronger and make a stronger case for its use, but it does, it's not immune to the same laws that everything else is. If I go out and start digging a new garden bed, and I get down about two feet, I hear chink, right? And all of a sudden I find the largest single gold discovery in my backyard that ever existed. There is a chunk of gold the size of an apartment building in my backyard. The value of gold around the world, the minute that is released, even before it even is in circulation, as soon as the knowledge of it being there exists, it's gone. It starts to it'll decrease. It will cause inflation of gold. In other words, each ounce will become worth less in the economy by increasing its supply. The entire reason that gold and silver have been successful as currencies is because the supply is capped. We can only have so much at any one time. But the fact that if I increase the supply sufficiently, I can devalue it, totally, totally destroys anybody's case that the gold itself is what carries the value. The gold does not carry the value. Gold is, what can you do with gold that you can't do with something else? Other than buy stuff because we've decided. And here's the big one. This is, this is where people get burned. Our, and we had Baldy and LeBlonde on yesterday. Baldy did a great job of explaining this. Our economy is not about to collapse for the first time. It's collapsed four times since 1913. Bretton Woods, the original move off the gold standard, uh, the final move off the gold standard. All these cases were places where the dollar completely changed in form and the average American went, Duh, I don't know. And we have moved to and from gold as a standard. It was done when we, Lincoln created the greenback and we moved completely off gold. And then after the Civil War, somebody shot Lincoln, hmm, right? We moved back to gold and it was more about that than the Civil War. When we moved back to gold, the American people lost. When we moved away from gold, the American people lost. The reality is that money itself was designed initially to create liberty, but the people that who have understood it better and were better at utilizing it as a tool have used it to enslave everybody else. And it doesn't matter whether they used gold to do it or they used fiat dollars to do it. It's the movement back and forth that allows them to get away with it over and over and our inability to think. That's the big problem. So that the people that actually saw gold used as a weapon are all dead or old and senile now. No one alive 
actually was 30 years old and a captain of industry and working their ass off when the gold standard existed. So nobody that was doing that then can really tell you what it was like. By now we've moved four different variations. The next one, folks, we're going back to the gold standard. It's going to happen. That's my, my best guess about the next solution. And they will screw you and me when they do it. And it's one reason you better own some gold. And you better own some silver. So I'm not against the ownership. But it's not money. It's not any more money than any other commodity ever used as money. And if you're starving to death, I will get a better deal from you if I have a bag of beans than a sack of gold. And until you can change that, until you can make gold into something, until you can make gold into something that in any situation will retain its value, it's no more money than anything else. Again, that's not any gold. That's not any silver. That's not anything against their proven track record. But when you just say, well, gold is money and nothing else is, you've been brainwashed. You've been brainwashed by a marketing cult that wants to do what? Get you to buy their gold. And what do they want from you in return for gold? Do they want you to go to the moon and bring them a moon rock? Something even rarer? No. They want your crummy, worthless United States dollars. Why? And how do they price the gold? In dollars. Why? Because it's what society currently agrees is our currency. And when society's agreement changes, it impacts everything that was previously used as a currency. Gold is not magic. It's a yellow metal that comes out of the earth. That is all that it is. And in the end, it is a toxin. If you consume it, it will kill you. Last bit of a case for gold not being money. If gold was so special in of itself, and it wasn't the agreement of society that it gave it its value, then we would still be working on what the alchemists, alchemists were working on hundreds and hundreds of years ago, how to turn lead into gold. Science probably could do that if they really wanted to. If you think about the fact that they can splice the gene from a fish into a corn plant, uh, taking a substance and adding some protons, neutrons, and electrons to it, which is the only thing that makes an atom of, of, of lead different from an atom of gold or an atom of carbon different from an atom of nitrogen, is how many electrons, protons, and neutrons it carries. You learn this in basic physics. So if we, if we take g lead and we come up with a system where we can manufacture gold for a dollar a pound, sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? How long would that last? How long would gold have value if we could make it artificially for a dollar a pound? Or it was chemically identical to what comes out of the ground? You want my final, final case? Another thing that we say has value are diamonds. Do you know why diamonds have value? Because the De Beers family bought up all the diamond mines and controls how many are released. There are diamond operations in South Africa where you can stand on the side of what looks like a strip bank of coal a uh, coal strip bank or a, a rock quarry with gravel and rock and stone all the way down a loose bank. You could take a five-gallon metal bucket, tie a rope to it 100 feet long, throw it down, drag it up the side of the bank, and 20% of what's in there will be usable diamonds, diamonds that can be cut and made into gem-quality stones. That's how many freaking diamonds there are. But one family bought up as much as they could of these large producing facilities, created a cartel, and controlled the release of it. 
don't think that some level of that doesn't exist with gold. It's a little harder to do because when gold is gold is gold is gold. So like a diamond, it's not subject to clarity and cut and purity and size. An ounce is an ounce is an ounce. But when it comes right down to it, gold is only worth money because we have agreed upon it as a society because its quantity is limited. And that's it. And that means we understand it as a tool. We don't chant gold, um, gold, um. We don't do that. We think. And we understand where the value comes from so that we don't put all our eggs in a, in a single basket, even a golden one. And if you do that, and if you buy into the bullshit that gold is money and nothing else is, you're probably going to get hurt in the coming shitstorm. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Revolution is you.